Hey guys, welcome to Amazed Way. Thanks for coming. Uh, wanna grab, um, go ahead and grab a donut, uh, some other food over there, um, grab something to drink, and if the coffee's not ready, it should be ready pretty soon. And uh, Mark Williams and I here are going to try to help you uh, navigate your way through some music this uh, evening, and Dan Rhodes is going to continue his series um, on the marks of the church. We haven't gotten to uh, gossip and meddling, uh, Dan. Ever. Okay, all right. I just wanted to know. That seems like one of the big marks of the church. They're coming. They're on the way. Okay, they're on the way. way. That's sort of infused in everything. Yeah. My dad was a pastor in a small Baptist church in South Carolina for a while, and he was trying to have a meeting with the deacons, and they pretty much said, we think you're trying to get us to do your job. So clearly meddling was all he was capable of. So just, you know, as one of the marks of the church, I thought. We're going to start off with a Beatles tune called uh, We Can Work It Out. You guys have probably heard it. We're talking tonight about uh, how we handle uh, conversation with each other, uh, conflicts, trying to understand each other's differences. And so we thought this idea of We Can Work It Out would uh, be uh, one that would add some lyrical liturgy to our evening. So uh, Mark's going to sing this for you. Go ahead and uh, take a look at your lyrics and uh, join join in with us on this one. Tell if I am right or I am wrong. What you see in your 
ceiling might fall apart before too long We can work it out We can work it out Hey everybody, I'm Tim. Welcome to Emmaus Way this evening. This is, uh, is it spring break for, no, I mean fall break. <laughs> fall break for Duke this weekend, so, uh, so I... Wait, yeah, you, you must be a student. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're looking for spring break already. I'm begging for it. The, uh, hey, I'm excited tonight. Um, we are continuing our series on marks of the church. Uh, uh, I, I hear Dan is uh, I, Dan is leading us in uh, binding and loosing, which is uh, I, I think one of the most. And Dan is the right person to lead us in this as well. It's one of the the most powerful conversations of what does it mean to live as a reconciled community. So looking forward to that. I hadn't heard the podcast. I was way last week, but I'm looking forward to hearing less next last week's very soon. Um, one of the things that we say about Emmaus Way is that we're a community of friends who are committed to living redemption together here in, um, in uh, Durham, in the greater community. And one of the things that's important to us is to hear each other's voices, to gather around the table, to in some ways embody that redemption for an evening that gives us the opportunity to, to know and hear each other's stories. So we're excited to do that tonight. We're glad you're with us. Um, in terms of a few missional things, so a couple of things coming up with Durham Can, which is one of our our four main partnerships. Dan, you want to give us an update on on Durham Can? Yeah, for those of you that are interested, tomorrow, uh, which is Monday, October seventeenth at two p.m. at the county clerk's office, um, a group of us are going to meet with the county clerk, and uh, the county clerk is going to teach us how to audit uh, foreclosure documents when people have been foreclosed on. Because uh, one of the things that we've found in our campaign with Durham Pan to try and slow down the process of foreclosures is that uh, banks have been robo-signing and kind of uh, fraudulently signing documents to just run them through the system. So we're going to do an audit here in Durham, in Durham County. Um, so if you're interested in that, it's, I realize 2 p.m. may not be a great time for a lot of you, but 2 p.m. tomorrow at the county clerk's office, which is downtown uh, off of Main Street. Um, if you want more information, just uh, email me or talk to me after church. Um, the other thing is we have a Delegates Assembly coming up the 27th. Delegates Assembly for CAN is when we, as an organization, get together um, a lot of uh, officials um, who are trying to get elected in the middle of elections right now um, are asked questions from CAN and will they work with us on some of the campaigns that we're working on and different stuff like that. Um, it's nonpartisan. Focused on issues, issues that we're working on in the community right now. Some of those are homelessness, uh, senior citizens issues, uh, which overlap quite a bit with homelessness. There's an initiative on education, and there's one on foreclosure right now. Um, I'm leaving one out, but I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. Hospital. Hospital. Uh, yeah, healthcare, hospital, hospital work stuff. Um, so those are the issues we're working on. So we'll be talking to uh, officials in the area about that. Uh, that kind of stuff. So and that's, that's at 7 p.m. at Nehemiah Christian. And that's on Thursday, right? On Thursday. 7 p.m. Did we make a promise for numbers of folks that would attend yeah. May's Way? What's our, what's our account? Is it 
10 to 12. Hey, and just a reminder of how, uh, how I always, we always laugh with Durham Can is that it's definitely a different model uh, than, than what we typically do. We tend to promise people because that's the way most of the churches and the network operate. So it's, it's one of the things that's fantastic when we get people out for something like that because the numbers are pretty powerful when it comes to working with uh, the politicians and stuff. So if you can come, probably Dave and Dan are the most, the best to ask in terms of that. And Nehemiah is right downtown, so it's not very far away. Hey, another reminder about, um, is it two weeks from now, we'll be doing All Saints. Is that right, Wade? That's right. And All Saints uh, potluck as well as a part of our worship gathering. What we do with All Saints is a really fun evening. It's, it's kind of the start of our kind of almost pre-advent for us and the start of the, the church year again for us. And one of the things we like to do is do an evening of storytelling where we get the opportunity to talk about people, things. It could be art or literature or anything like that, but kind of the saints or people who have wrestled with faith and how they've impacted our own faith. And it's been through the years, it's been an opportunity for us us to get to know our community. Almost every year there's a story told where you kind of go, I would have never guessed that. Uh, so that's coming up in two Sundays, potluck. Uh, so please bring food if you can to share. And uh, we'll do kind of a, uh, in addition to, you know, Eucharist and music, we'll do uh, also kind of a prolonged storytelling type of thing. And it's just an opportunity for people to share. And we'll have a, a prompt or two to help people get started with that. Yeah, having an opportunity to talk about folks that have Im- impacted your faith, whether that's you know a, a writer or a teacher or a parent or um, you know a, a film director, those are all uh, things that we've talked about in the past. And just learning how our different faiths have been shaped of people in this community has been a great way to know more about each other. Right. The other thing that is coming up, and I, the date has escaped me, but I'll figure it out sometime tonight, is the uh, we have a, a, a child dedication coming up in, in a few weeks. And so we'll get that date to you. But if you're a parent and you want to uh, dedicate a child, it's one of the things that's, it's really, that's another lovely evening for us because it's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves that we are, we're, we're not just kind of raising kids alone, but it's a community of friends that are committed to uh, supporting you as parents, uh, interacting in your, your kids' lives. And so that's, that'll be coming up in a few weeks as well and if you're interested there's several folks that are already committed to this one but if you're interested please feel free to to jump in on that as well but it's good to see everybody here this evening and uh uh, wait looking forward to continuing in worship glad to have you back tim glad you made it safely from your travels um we're gonna do our songs of preparation tonight um and uh the songs of preparation uh, are picked, they're part of our liturgy, and what I mean by that is that they're part, liturgy means literally the words of the people, and these are songs that come from different writers that we feel like express things that we'd like to express, maybe don't always have the poetry or whatever to express them. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd love to have you sing along, but if it's a song that you don't know, then take it as a prayer that's being read or uh, something where you've got an opportunity to hear a story of something that happens with God's people. One of the things you'll notice about this first song, Peter Hillman, is that uh, God has the O missing, and uh, it's not actually missing. He just doesn't write the O of God in the same way that people didn't write uh, the the vowels of Yahweh when uh, the Jews would write down uh, the name of God. They wouldn't speak it, and they wouldn't write it, and so it's his nod as an Orthodox Jew to uh, Yahweh. And so it's really a story uh, that he's writing of a conflict he's had with uh, his brother, and don't know exactly what the nature of the conflict is, but I think it has a lot to do with our hope for reconciliation, our hope for God to uh, intervene, for us to be able to also 
care for one another even though we don't always see eye to eye. And then the second song we're going to do for our liturgy, uh, uh, for the songs of preparation, is Surrender, which is a, a song that's really kind of a modern-day retelling of Amazing Grace. And uh, it's sort of um, Michael Ben's version of, of saying, God, I, I, I'm glad to be back where I'm reconciled to you. And obviously, as you see, as we will go through the lyrics, you'll see he's not just saying reconciled in a vertical way, but reconciled with each other as people. And so uh, I think you'll see that element in there a lot. So anyway, this is God, Don't Have to Teach You This Way. between us 
it's meant to last Though this world may seem bitter cold Don't stay that way, I'm told For the sun is gonna shine on us one day But I scream until I shake Saying there must be some mistake God don't have to teach you this way
Yeah, well, there's really not much to it When you get right down to it, baby Well, we stand or fall together Take the blows that come our way Yeah, we've been walking in the spirit Singing with the heavenly choir Yeah, you know love won't hide forever I wouldn't give my dreams away I've been so blind so on forever we gotta get through this together i was so blind so long oh god i miss you I, uh, I've been struggling with a cold all week, so I came loaded for bear, so that's just why this stuff is up here. There's no, I'm not thinking this is going to break out in hysteria and some kind of altar call or some kind of third grade awakening or something here, but, um, uh, so you might have to bear with me if my voice cracks or if I uh, have to wipe uh, my nose from time to time. <laughs> Um, you may not recognize this automatically, but uh, we're actually a deeply liturgical community. Um, and we've already been walking together through, thinking through, and acting through, and working together through some of the themes that we're going to talk about tonight. Those two songs that we just sang in the introduction song before the greeting have set up our theme in order to help you reflect on, think about, participate in, what might be one of the more intense practices of a Christian community? Tonight we're going to talk about binding and loosing. Uh, we're going to talk about how the community works its way through a complicated world and through the conflicts that might arise within it and outside of it uh, and in the world that it inhabits. Um, and I think if you look at those songs as we're seeing them, you'll realize that uh, Wade and Mark have put some time into crafting and thinking through, well, what might it begin to look like to participate in this process through music? Um, so that's to remind you again, we're a deeply liturgical community, and that's a, a, a way of inviting you into joining in that work, joining in doing that uh, work together. Um, as is our custom here, um, I'm going to invite you to stand up, uh, pass the peace of Christ to one another, grab a snack, grab coffee if you want it, and I'll call you back in a few minutes to begin our dialogue. All right, we're going to start up here. I realize that tonight the competition uh, for a dialogue is extremely stiff because Denise brought uh, Krispy Kreme donuts, which means uh, you're likely going to have to get up at some point while we're discussing this and make your way back over there. That's fine. Uh, you can never have just one of those. I realize that. Um, it's fine to move around um, to take advantage of those. 
So tonight, uh, in our conversation, we're going to work from a passage in Matthew. This is from the 18th chapter of Matthew. Um, and Dave Klein's going to read the passage for us tonight. All right. This is Matthew 18, 15-20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it, for it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to gather, for a chance to uh, learn from one another, to hear the gospel, and to find ourselves enveloped, wrapped up in, taken up into your grace. We ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to receiving that grace into our lives. All this we ask in your son's name. Amen. Now, what I want to ask you a question starting out. What comes to mind uh, when I say or when you think of conflict in the church? What, what, what comes to mind for you? Doctrine. Doctrine. Yeah, so some disagreements over, I don't know, maybe some elements of the Trinity or some ideas about what the church should be doing, usually some doctrinal conflicts, certainly. Judgment. Judgment, Judgment. okay. Yeah, so usually a sense of somebody has got to be in the wrong and some, yeah, there's a funny, actually, I, I just now thinking about this, my father uh, taught at an unnamed university when I was a kid, um, and... Uh, we moved to Florida and he became a pastor when I was about 10 years old. And about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half after we were there, he received this letter from this very conservative institution that he had taught at before. And it was basically a list of all these charges against him that he needed to report back on or they were going to ban him from the grounds and from the university itself. And like that typically, I think, like issues of doctrine and this sense of judgment of, hey, uh, you better get your stuff together or, or we're going we're gonna, to gonna be some consequences for that. Oh, yeah, excommunication, yes, yes. Uh, we're going to look at a little bit of that tonight because I think in some sense uh, the way in which excommunication has been played out uh, in the history of the church has been from time to time one of the most bastardized processes of what we're going to look at tonight, uh, which is the process of binding and loosing. Anybody else? Yes, and a, an amazingly American flavor to, to this phenomenon is the denominationalism. Hey, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, I'm taking my ball and going home, right? So you play by yourself. If you want to, I'm going to go start my own church. Uh, a sense of, hey, I'm going I'm to go my own way, fracturing. Yeah, so usually a public display. 
In some sense, there's a, you know, something has gone awry. We're going to be very vague about that from time to time, but there's going to be this public display of somehow something's gone wrong that you need to know about, but not too much. Um, and uh, somebody is just all of a sudden going to disappear from the ranks, likely. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I think a lot of times when we think of conflict in the church, we think about impasse. Uh, we think about people not being able to come together to reconcile about these things. We may think of culture wars and the way those things divide churches and divide our whole society. Uh, and in this passage, Jesus actually turns his attention to the community and begins in a weird, awkward, awkward way that's almost out of sync with the whole rest of the passage to teach the community some very basic things about how it's to relate to one another. He gives some very specific directives. You know, most of the time, Jesus is not the most practical person, right? Jesus is not the most pragmatic giver of advice. Somebody hits you, what do you do? You beat the crap out of them. No, Jesus says you turn the other, face, turn the other cheek. If someone asks for your cloak, what does it say? No, hold on to it, it's cold. No, Jesus says, give them the cloak. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is, you want to know what the kingdom of God's like? Well, it's, it's like this, and he tells some random story. Jesus is not always known for giving the most pragmatic and practical advice. But here, the words of Jesus almost read like a fix-it-yourself book. It's very pragmatic and practical, almost as practical as Jesus gets in a way. This is one of the few instances in all of Matthew's gospel that the term church is used. And it's as if Christ is somehow turning to almost the readers of Matthew's account to say, hey, community, listen up. When you struggle with these things, when these things come up, I'm going to give you some very specific directions for how to deal with them. This is brass tacks. It's nuts and bolts. Practical teaching on how to try to live together and to make sense of our world. Now, one thing I want to point out from the beginning. One thing I think we have to recognize here is that Jesus understands and assumes that conflict will arise in the community. Jesus does not start off by saying, if conflict arise, screw the whole thing, you messed it up. Let's start over again, scratch the church, we're going to go back. That in some sense, there's a freedom here to recognize that the church itself will encounter conflicts. That conflicts will arise as we try to live in community together. That we are going to see things from different perspectives. We're going to encounter things from different ways. And as we do that, we're going to have conflicts that arise. That there will be times when people feel wronged by other people. There will be times when some of us feel as if we're being excluded from the church or from a different group. The key thing here, however, is that while conflict will come up, one of the definitive statements in this text is that conflict is not insurmountable. That conflict within the Christian community is not going to determine our life together such that we cannot get beyond it. That while conflict is inevitable, it's not insurmountable. It's something that we actually can work through. And in some sense, 
One of the radical things that's being said here by Christ is that as a community, one of the distinguishing marks of us as a Christian community will be, in fact, the way that we handle conflict. That one of the distinguishing marks of being the body of Christ is not that we will never come into conflict, but that we will handle it differently, that we will relate to one another differently. The name or the kind of general theme here that Christ gives to it is a term called binding and loosing. That can be a kind of odd sounding term to our ears. But when Christ refers to binding and loosing, what what Jesus is talking about there is basically in binding, it is the way in which the community thinking together, arguing with one another, call one another to obligation So binding somebody to an activity or to a response or to a remission or to a recompense or a restitution. Or they loose, which is to free the person from an obligation that she might have had at a prior time. So binding and loosing are terms that are used to say the community itself is going to work out what its obligations are for one another. And it's also going to free one another at times from those obligations themselves. That binding and loosing will be how we know our responsibilities as a community, but also how we free ourselves from captivity to things that may no longer be obligations for us. That's all to say that the community together is going to engage these conflicts. That this will be a deeply, intensely communal thing. That we will seek to respond in times of conflict with one one another, together, working through them. Now, the conclusions that we kind of reach from these as we struggle through conflict together, are not simply a group of conclusions that are top-down in orientation. They're not things that are given as ultimatums, but they emerge, and this is a key term here, they emerge from a process. They emerge in process and through process. Now, you and I, in our culture for the most part, is not really into process. We're outcomes people, right? We like to see outcomes. We like to see results. We want to see definitive answers. How you get there, I don't care. If you come to work one hour or you come to work five hours, as long as you produce the document, I do not care how long you were here. We are outcomes type of people. I think this is most, uh, maybe grossly, but most uh, vividly illustrated in what might be the 80s Shoney's era. Do you remember the Shoney's restaurant? The Shoney's restaurant was this massive buffet that really could, you could find anything you ever possibly would have wanted, you would have wanted. That they could produce food, that, that in some sense you could go there and feel like there was a limitless amount of food on the planet, that there was a limitless amount of variety that you could tap and you could eat. And we liked the idea that when I sit down and I pay $9.95 for a meal, I want to eat as much as I can. (laughs) But over the past 20 years or so, I think an interesting shift has taken place in our culture. Maybe from certain books like Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. 
is that we as a group of people are beginning to pay a little bit more attention to the process that goes into producing our food. That we are now as a people a little bit more concerned about where it came from, how it got produced, what went into its making. That we're turning away from simply saying, I want food and I want a lot of it, to maybe saying, actually, I'm really interested in where this chicken that's on my plate came from, where it lived, what hormones might be in it. That in the exposés of some of these types, we found that the process of making and producing what we eat is actually almost and maybe always more important than what the end of that process is. That's something with all additives, fillers, while it might in some way resemble something that looks close to a chicken, might not actually be the best for our bodies. And that an attention to process is beginning to emerge. I think when we look at this passage, you'll notice one thing that, that, that jumps out at you. Jesus does not give any conclusions. You see, for Christ in this passage, teaching the disciples and teaching the community, the focus is completely on the process. That the process and the way in which conflict is handled is actually more important, it seems, than the conclusions that are reached. That the way in which we struggle through these things are more important than having the right answer a lot of times. So I want to look with you real quickly at some of the elements of this process. If we're starting from the fact that the process itself is just as important and maybe more important than the outcome, then what are the elements of this process? What are the elements of the process of dealing with conflict in the congregation. Now I have to say here that I've stolen a lot of these shamelessly from John Howard Yoder. Um, if you want to read more on that, pick up the book Body Politics. Uh, you can make your way through it. It's a wonderful read. Uh, but I, I've filched these quite literally. So uh, this is not my brain producing these things. I'm stealing from people that are older and dead. Okay. <laughs> The first thing I think that we notice, and this is where I'm saying, this is brass tacks, this is very, very practical teaching, is that the process itself begins with a concrete offense. It begins with a very real problem. Not some idea of what a problem might be, not some thought about who might be, uh, be inflicting pain on somebody else, but a very concrete and real problem that occurs in the community. This is where the process itself begins. The second part, or the second element, I think, then, is that the initiative in dealing with this offense, this concrete offense, is personal and not a clergy function. That it is actually the person who has been offended that Christ calls to address the person who has offended them. It's not a clergy function, meaning that it is not the responsibility of the pastors or those people who might speak on Sunday to deal and work out all the conflicts in the community, but that it is the responsibility of the person 
who finds themselves offended to approach the person who has offended them. And I think something very important is going on here. That in doing it this way, some of the things that we joked about at the beginning, in doing it this way, some of the publicity and the threat of very public shame is removed from the equation, from the get-go. That in the personalizing of it and in the approaching, that this second step of the process removes the publicity and the shame from trying to get the better of somebody who thinks, who you think has offended you. And this leads me to the third element. The intention here is restorative and not punitive. Now that's very different from the culture that we live in. But the focus here on rendering and working through conflict is on resolution and not on punishment. That we must assume in working through conflicts in our community that we are not playing a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game being the idea that the way I win is that somebody else has to lose. That there's a limited level or a, a, a defined level of goods and that in order for me to get mine, somebody else has to lose theirs. That when we work with that intention, we're actually not following the process that Christ has given us here. But that the process here is not one of a zero-sum game, but is a process that actually believes a win-win might emerge from conflict itself. The fourth. There's no distinction in this passage between what we might call major offenses and minor offenses. That in some sense, dealing with conflict in the community is something that will be pervasive and always going on. That Jesus does not say, all right, when something really, 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 really big happens, here's how you deal with it. When one of the pastors has committed sexual infidelity, this is the way that you deal with it. But the call is always to even the things that people feel slighted in the least bit. That in some sense, this will be a process that is going on continually in any healthy Christian community. That we will be sorting out our differences with one another. The catch here is the idea and the notion and the belief that anything is forgivable. And no sin or no offense is trivial. I mean, that's often the way things actually get very large. Is that these offenses that we let fester, we refuse to talk about, actually then explode in more violent arguments. That by sometimes neglecting this step or this element of the process, we actually drive the process in a different direction and make it something different. The fifth is this, that after having gone to somebody, trying to approach that person with an offense, and there not being a reconciliation there, 
that actually Christ points out that there are talents, skills, and dif different roles in the community itself of people who can join in the process to work as arbitrators. That arbitration can take place and that special skills and talents might be found in the community to help people work through the differences that they can't seem to reach a conclusion to. That in some sense, the taking two or three with you are people who don't have any idea of what's going on. It's not those people, but it is people who are intimate to the situation, people who know the situation, who are in the know of the situation, and can therefore find and help you work through the types of conflicts that are coming out. And sixthly, this is the last one of the elements. This is, I think, very, very important, especially in the culture that we live in. The intention here is not to protect the church's reputation. It's also not to teach onlookers the seriousness of sin. But it's only to serve the offender's well-being and to restore her or him to the community. I think one important thing that focusing on the process and not the outcome really helps us to see is that it keeps us from making wrong assumptions about what's at stake. That we can, be, we can be easily tricked into thinking that really what's at stake is the church has to come off looking serious. That the church has to come off looking as if we never have any flaws and people in our congregation never disagree with one another. Both of these are wrong. That a focus on the process is not concerned with those. A focus on the process is always concerned with the well-being of the offender and how that person might be restored to full community in the congregation. It's more of a style of the community's engagement with one another than a struggle of insecurity about what people might think about Emmaus Way. That engaging in this process is not an attempt to defend ourselves to the community, but it's actually a way we care for one another. It's a way we deeply relate to one another. It's how we be community to one another. Through these elements, I think we find that there are two distinct functions of binding and loosing. That engaging in this process, it meets two important functions for our community. The first is obvious one, that it is a way of resolving conflict. A lot of times we think the way to resolve conflict is to do battle with one another. That if I have an offense, or if I'm offended by you, if you've done something wrong to me, the way to respond is to win. And the way to win is to beat you up enough that you will comply with my will. The idea in conflict resolution and binding and loosing is not winning and it's not a battle, but it's actually resolution. The term that's used at the end of our passage when it says agreed is actually symphony. It's a term that says you will be brought into harmony with one another, that you will be brought into a unique meeting with one another, that you'll fit better than you did before. That in some sense there be a fuller display of the argument that's going on, of the controversy that's going on, 
than was present before. I think in understanding this, we have to realize that forgiveness is the currency here. Were we to look at the full of this passage, of all of 18 of Matthew, Jesus goes into some very long dialogues about the role of forgiveness in the community, challenging the idea that Peter says, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? I'm doing pretty good, and I think it's about three. And Jesus shocks everybody by saying it's actually 70 times seven. That in some sense, forgiveness will be the only thing that makes reconciliation in a community possible. The only way to get past the impasse of conflicts is if forgiveness is the principle of our relationships. And there's also something more said. Jesus goes on to tell a story about a debtor who owes money to a king. The king is going to throw the debtor into prison. And when the debtor asks for forgiveness, the king relents. But on his way back, he grabs one of his fellow servants, throws that person into jail because they owe him a very small amount. And Jesus' conclusion there is that to receive forgiveness, in some sense, we have to be givers of forgiveness. That the kingdom itself will be built on and around and by the currency of forgiveness, the exchange of forgiveness with one another, that this will be the very base principle of the community itself. Forgiveness, in some sense, is the rule of the game. Like, uh, I played soccer growing up, and I don't usually like to give sports illustrations because I think they're way overdone in our culture, but I think it works here, so stick with me. All right? To play the game of soccer, there are some very basic rules, one of which is that you cannot use your hands. Right? Whatever else you might be doing on the field, if you pick up the ball, if you start to throw the ball, you're no longer playing soccer. You're actually playing a different game. You're doing something else. That all the goals of the game, all the ends of the game, are somehow related to the fact that you have to obey and participate by this basic rule. The same is here for working through conflicts in our community. And the basic rule is... We must be people who forgive because we have already known ourselves as forgiven. That forgiveness in the community is an absolute necessity. It's actually the life breath of the community itself. But forgiveness also is not something that's superficial here. I don't think the idea that Christ has here is some flippant notion of forgiveness that just says, oh, yeah, it's all done. It's cool, man. This is not hippie forgiveness. That in some sense, the call here is to real engagement, relational engagement, where truth is not sacrificed for some flippant forgiveness. But that forgiveness is the rule of the game. There's a quirky ending to this passage here and some irony maybe that Matthew pitches in. And I'm tempted to want to read our passage that way. The most offensive part of this passage, right, you'll, you'll find it there with me, is that if you are no longer reconciled, let the person become a pagan and a tax collector. And that has been the verse that has been repeatedly used over and over throughout the church's centuries 
right, for excommunication, for expelling somebody from the congregation. But I'm tempted to read Matthew's irony here. You see, if we were to crack the book of Matthew and we were to read the whole thing, we would actually find that Jesus' ministry is always to the pagans and the tax collectors. That in some sense, Matthew's saying, if the process continues to fail, then the offender will be somebody to which the whole community's ministry will continually be directed. That in some sense, there's no limit to the forgiveness that goes on here. That forgiveness will continue to be the practice and the activity of the community. Now, I want to stop for a second and ask you a question. What do you think it would mean for Durham, for the county, for the city, and for maybe even North Carolina, and certainly our location here, to be a forgiving community? What do you think it would mean in our world to be a real forgiving community? Yeah, it'd be tough to be a bail bondsman, I think. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you could work that out somehow. We could talk about it. But yeah, I mean, there, there might be some, some challenges to the way in which we do things, what we take as business as usual. It, it might mean that there are fewer secrets. It, you know, that's not something that's predicated here, but... But if, if we're talking about a public forum of the city of Durham, it, it might mean that some things that are usually sort of brushed under the rug or not talked about would actually be brought to light in a way that, that can be a, a systematic community forgiveness. Yeah, I think in some sense there would be a, a level of honesty in the community. Um, not an honesty based on uh, the sense of if you tell a lie, you're going to go to hell, but a sense of the freedom that knowing forgiveness is the currency allows us to tell the truth about ourselves and actually to approach others about what we think they're doing and how we're feeling that, the repercussions of that. That in some sense there's a freedom to be honest there. There might be less anger and vindictiveness on some basic levels. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all, we, everybody, all of us know somebody or have seen this in our own lives where there was something that happened to us or to somebody that we know where that offense became a defining moment of who they are and that their whole life from that point on has been carried out in relation to that offense. And in some sense, the vindictiveness at times or the anger at times becomes an overwhelming captivity for people. I think. So maybe forgiveness allows us, it's not going to happen overnight, but maybe to begin to work through those things. I say that serious offenses might not occur, but that in some sense uh, freeing us from solely seeing anger and resentment as the alternative. Mm-hmm. So if you were to say, Durham only would mm-hmm. forgive all foreclosures, mm-hmm. we are going to leave the Mm-hmm. We are going to say this community is going to take a stand here, you know, to... Are you running for office? 
<laughs> yeah, I think in some sense it might force us to rethink a lot of big things that we take for granted. I think that's a real challenge to us in working through conflicts, that conflicts are not simply kitchen table conflicts here. We're not talking about solely. We are talking about those because, like I said earlier, nothing, no, nothing's trivial, that all things are taken seriously. But we also might point us to some larger conversations to say, look, these are some very large offenses that are taking place in our culture. And in Durham, the rate of foreclosure might be one of those. And what would it look like for a community to approach that with forgiveness? That might be a really, that might be a breath of fresh air in our world. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, this, it's this notion of, of self-awareness that, that forgiveness relies upon, right? So, so what you have is you have a much more self, in order to forgive, you have to understand what you're forgiving for. And so like, as I'm sitting here as, as a Durham, I don't think, I don't have any idea, like, what, am, what, what should I be forgiving? Yeah. And, and so like, it, it kind of forces that exercise of, 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 of self-awareness of, you know, I, I need to understand that. Yeah, and I think one of the important parts of even the process of, of encountering one another is that there are times when we feel we have been offended and the community might actually say, actually, that's not an offense. You just read it wrong. That in some sense, a, a certain about, a, a amount of self-awareness and we, how we fit into the equation itself might actually emerge from the process itself. There's not the sense that here already somebody's been defined as right, the other person wrong necessarily. But we're going to have to work that out in the process itself. And I think that a notion, a, a sense of self-awareness really emerges from that. Yeah. So I'd expect a lot of representational repentance and forgiveness. So I'd expect people to say, well, you know what? There's some racial stuff that goes back two or three hundred years. Well, it's really easy for people to say, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. Well, actually, but how do you, how do you re- how do you deal with the past? And, and one of the traditions I've been in says what you do is you do representational repentance, just like the mm. prophets did for Israel. Mm. You say we were wrong as a whole community. Sure, it's easy to say it wasn't me, I'm not one of those guys. But actually, if you want to move beyond that, if you want to really loose people from the bounds of the past, then you've got to do that in the same way communities need to come to give in that same representational way. Yeah. And so I'd expect a whole bunch of that to be going on of, of, of history, of, um, sort of these bigger things. And, and that, I'm sure, would also make a lot of people very angry. So Andrew was saying that, that the way in which we deal with some of the very large things, like maybe racism in Durham, would, would require uh, demonstrations of repentance and maybe repetition of those demonstrations. And I think what we're pointing out here is that there's a sense of humility and a sense of fragility that the community has to live in in order to engage conflicts in the right way, to engage them in the process that allows us to bind and loose. Now let me point to the second aspect. Do you want, yeah. Go ahead. I really like the things that you're saying um, about this passage. Um, I find myself though, really struggling with certain points in that um, I like the idea of the, this, you bring the other people with you, not so you have uh, more folks that you can beat on the the person and make them realize how awful they are, but 
to bring skills to help bring about reconciliation. Um, but there, because I think most of the time we all justify what we do, and so um, we need people more skills to help us see things in a different way. But I wonder, this is written to, as instructions for within the community, where presumably they have some sort of common um, point of reference to use to um, to explore what's going on. Uh, I'm thinking about um, how to use this with people who just don't have that, or, or in the case of domestic violence, mm -hmm. um, it is so complicated because it's not really just the <coughs> that family, and it's, it's not a mental illness. It's that perpetrators um, of domestic violence are often taught that if they don't have control of their family, mm -hmm. they aren't worth anything as men. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a whole societal mm -hmm. uh, problem. But so often the the women victims are um, told to go by their churches to go home and forgive mm -hmm. and to put it in just that narrow context um, does another kind of violence. Um, yeah, I think, I think what, what, when we talk about forgiveness here, uh, and that's what I was trying to say with regard to the idea that truth is not sacrificed for forgiveness. This is not some sense of, hey, just wipe the slate clean and move on. That in some sense, the engagement in the process is one that requires authenticity and it requires deep relational commitment, even by the people who have been asked to join in that process, such that we're not blowing off offense, but that offense is actually dealt with and encountered and brought to resolution or worked toward resolution in some ways. Um, and that I think one of the things that you're saying is that uh, we can't just expect this to happen out of, the, out of the blue. But maybe in order to get to a place where we as a community can begin to think about some of those larger issues, we have to begin to practice it. We have to begin to, to do it, just like any other skill, that we can't begin with just doing it on a grand scale. But we have to begin by doing it on a small scale. We have to be a community that first becomes trained to deal with conflicts so that maybe we can extrapolate from there and actually deal with some very large conflicts that seem absolutely insurmountable. I think that's also a part of our hope and of faith. The second function of this process is this. It's one of communal discernment. It's one that seeks wisdom of how to live ethically in regard to Christ being the lead of our community. That it's not a focus on ultimatums or on universal maxims, but it teaches us the art and the skill of being wise. You see, we live in a world that's actually very complex and complicated. The world has shifted and moved a lot. The world that we live in was not the world that our grandparents lived in. Things have changed. That culture and society have changed quite a bit. We don't see Jesus here or anywhere in the text saying, all right, now when it gets, I know you don't know what this is, but when it gets to stem cell, here's exactly how you handle it. We don't have any instructions for that. 
We don't have any instructions for the idea, okay, so once the atom bomb is developed, it's a definite no. All right, before that, eh, we'll talk about it a little bit. There's not a sense of, of like a, blue, a blueprint here or a manual to read our world. But that we as a community, when these conflicts arise, it's actually going to force us to think and discern our way through the world that we inhabit. We've seen over and over again that ultimatums and absolutes are poor ethical advice. They're poor ethical instructions. Let me give you an example. We might all agree, as it says in the Old Testament, that thou shalt not steal. That seems like a pretty much an ultimatum, right? Pretty much a universal maxim. It's never right, ever a good thing to steal. But even if we begin to read through church history, we will realize that our theologians and our thinkers still had to try to interpret what stealing was. In the majority of our church documents, the church writers did not think stealing on behalf of need was actually theft. If you try that in our culture, you'll probably go to jail. But that there was some interpretation of what theft actually means. We might think, thou shalt not kill. Never a good thing. Never will do it. But what happens in cases of manslaughter when it was accidental? How do we deal with it then? Is it still eye for eye? What about war? What about when somebody's threatening your life? That killing itself will have to be defined in that sentence. That we find ourselves as people in a very complicated and complex world. And that if we refuse to engage this process of how and when conflicts arise, when we view activities differently and when we allow ourselves to disagree and to talk about them, if we refuse that process, we're actually going to lose our ethics. We're going to lose our sense of wisdom of how to live the reality of Christ in a very complex world. You see, that term binding and loosing here is a rabbinical term. It refers to the way in which rabbis reflecting on the law would teach about it. They would try to take the law and put it into their own circumstances. They would begin to teach, and that became a whole tradition known as the halakha, known as the way of how to be Jewish in the circumstances of Babylonian captivity, of Roman captivity. That we as a people are going to have to engage in a very rabbinical practice, which is to tell one another through engaging in conversation and wrestling with conflict what we're actually obligated to do and what we're free from being obligated to do. That's what it means to be part of a living tradition. To be part of a tradition that's alive and that is engaged in the world that it lives in. Now, I want to ask you a question real quick here. Does that seem like something that's actually fearful or exciting? Does that seem like something that's going to create a whole host of problems? Or does it seem like it might actually be beneficial? Thank gosh, who has the time? <laughs> I mean, when I think about a lot, some of the churches that I grew up in, they worked this almost in the opposite way, where I think like you said earlier, that the whole point of this is restoration, and it seemed like it's sort of a rule-by-law type context in the country that we're all in. Churches that I was in, this is, this is about process, and it could be pretty quickly. They would follow this like checkpoints. Okay, I went, nope, next to get two more people, nope, get the church, nope. 
throw you out. Right. And it's like, this is a good constitutional way to figure out how can we get rid of this lousy, lame person. And you got to go through due process, otherwise Jesus won't be happy. Right. Um, but you, you have this process, great, get through it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But when this really isn't, like I said, it's, it's not about this. This is, this is more of a shape of character, not a set of checklists. Yeah. You might have to go to somebody 15 times alone before you bring anybody else in. It's not about shape, but, but again, like that all takes, this could take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes resolutions can take years, and that's, yeah. we're a quick culture, and that, that can be unsettling, that we, we can't get this result by sundown, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I think there's a real sense of urgency in our culture that predominates our culture, that we have to get these things settled so we can move on, right? And I think the gift here of a process of conflict resolution and communal discernment is that there's a real gift of of patience and a a gift of time to be patient. That in some sense, the kingdom of God is not ultimately dependent upon our ability to make it happen right now, but that we are actually relying upon the Spirit of God, to lead us forward. That in some sense, this is a deeply sacramental process. And by sacrament, I mean the the, the defining promise of Matthew is capsulated here. That Emmanuel, God with us, is actually how our passage ends. That when two or three gather I will be with you is actually an invitation and a promise to the community that when we do this, when we engage in this process, not when the church just decides like it's a checklist and we've got to go through these things, but when we actually engage in this process that the spirit of God will lead us forward, that our discernment will be developed, that it'll be peaked, that it'll be enlightened by the spirit of God who leads us forward. And I think in that we're given two gifts. We're given the possibility of patience. That in being given time, we're being trained in patience. That working through conflict is not something that's going to happen in the immediate necessarily. It can happen that way. But that we are to be characterized as a profoundly patient people. And I think too, It's also not conflict avoidance. That we trust our conflicts to the spirit. That church is not a place you come to be nice. It's not a place you come to put on a pretty face, but it's actually a place you come to be in community, to be known and to know. And that that actually is going to take quite a bit of work. It's not a southern tea party where you clink glasses, everybody's dressed in their finest, and everybody smiles. But it's actually a community that's more committed to one another. You see, to bind and to loose is a defining characteristic of a community dependent upon the Spirit. For only when we're dependent upon the Spirit are we faithfully pursuing reconciliation, and are we faithfully discerning what it means to be church to be the church of Christ in our world. That the process of binding and loosing is in some sense the life of the community itself. That we, the people of God, have been given the possibility through the Spirit 
to actually love, reconcile, and move forward with one another. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Our confession tonight, as we move towards the table, we're going to do our confession absolution uh, musically. And our confession sort of deals with this uh, comment, Mary Man, that you just made about uh, abuse, a situation where something's been um, really out of line and where someone's been in a place where they really need to, to draw a boundary with somebody. I think that um, we're certainly not trying to say in this conversation that if you're in a dangerous situation or a an abusive situation, the forgiveness means that you just walk right back into that. Um, I think what it's saying is that in our culture, we oftentimes have a punishment mentality, a mentality that says there's only one just thing for someone who's been an abuser, and that thing is this amount of jail time or whatever. There's not this idea of rehabilitation. It's really not in our prison system at all. So um, talking about the fact that there are times where we really do have to draw boundaries, and that's not saying we don't forgive or that we won't be working on it with boundaries, but uh, also saying that sometimes we can fall into that place where we've had to draw a boundary with something or that, that where there was real danger or difficulty, but then we don't know what love looks like. And so I think that's in our confession tonight is saying, how do we love? What does love look like in a situation that's gotten out of hand? But this song is uh, one of Mark's, so I wanted to give you Mark a chance to say, I don't know if you want to talk uh, much about this song, but if there's anything you do want to mention, I, you know, you're welcome to jump yeah, in. This is just a, sometimes you write songs that just sort of take a day and you're done, and then this was one that took probably about eight or nine years to really effectively write it with a lot of changes. Um, so, yeah, this is sort of a song, like Wade said, sort of about a time where um, the, the character in the song has sort of faced a certain amount of abuse and... Um, and let's be honest, I'm the person in the song. <laughs> I wrote the song. I'm the first person. That's me. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that's sort of the point of this. So yeah, it's to say that what it says in the bridge, sometimes we get to the point that we are no longer in conversation because we're just screaming past each other and we need to take a break and, and figure this out.
heart to recognize the cuts that hurt the worst. Staring into the other's eyes, wondering the whole point for her. times uh, from Buddy Miller called Chalk comes from the last verse where uh, he says um, in the middle of a conflict he's talking about kind of what his own words and his own meanings and his own trying to struggle with what it means to understand he says all our words are written down in chalk Out in the rain, on the sidewalk. If our heartaches were in a stack, they'd go all the way up to heaven and back. We don't know all the trouble we're in. We don't know how to get home again. Jesus, come and save us from our sin. So the song's really repetitive. The chorus is uh, similar. So uh, join us as you get this one. Save you from yourself 
was a really important conversation tonight. I, uh, John, uh, John Howard Yoder's list is photocopied and put in my office at home and around the house several places because just even the idea of saying that um, the church deals with um, its, its strife and its, its need for forgiveness, not to protect God, but to be something that, that, that's different is, is powerful in and of itself. So, Dan, thank you for, for walking us through that, uh, Dan, and there's a few others here, but Dan is truly a, a scholar of Yoder and several others, and it's a privilege for us to have him here. Um, you know, I was thinking of another thing, too. Your question you asked us, what would happen if people forgive? And one of the things that I think a lot of times when you ask that question, people are thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
who should I forgive? You know, because, uh, you know, there, there's people that bug me all the time. Dave's probably done something this week I need to point out to him. And we forget that we're probably the one that needs to be forgiven very, very regularly. And, and you know, if you were in a process where forgiveness flowed, where you were, were forgiven often, you might realize, wow, there's so many times that I have, have done something that have pushed people away. And to me, one of the outcomes of that would be a far more inclusive community because there's so many times that we've got something going on where we're keeping people at distance because we're playing the zero-sum game and we don't realize that we're doing that and that was my quick reaction is that we'd, we would be more inclusive and I say that to say that one of the privileges I have of being one of the pastors of this community is I've heard a lot of people's stories and I know as we were talking about this tonight I thought wow there's probably a lot of people here who have been bound or loosed in a really painful way in their their life. Uh, Mark, when you did that song tonight, what an amazing song liturgically for us because it was very vulnerable to a story that I feel like you know, you've, you've told us about many times, but also it was liturgically challenging us to realize that how many times have we been the person that someone can't talk to as a part of that. And so just beautiful. It's, it's, it's hard work for us, and I think it was well said, Trigger, tonight, that this is something that describes very, very hard work. Here's one of the end games of it, though, is that if we think about a community that forgives and forgives often and the type of inclusion that might create and the type of freedom that it might create, in some ways I was thinking, wow, it lets us practice the table in a way that is truly unique. I mean, we say this every week, um, that everyone in this community is, uh, is invited to be at the table. You are welcome at this table. It's an open table. And, and as I was thinking about that tonight, I winced and realized, you know, I've been in so many circumstances circumstances where the table, whatever it was, literally or metaphorically, was not an open table. There was some form of people that were deemed uh, more sinful than others or all of those things. And so tonight as we come to this table, as we gather, we break bread. And if you don't know our tradition, we, we do the table very casually in one sense is that we, we break bread for each other and we say the, the body of Christ. We pour wine or juice for each other and we, we say the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And we, we do this in this meal kind of, uh, of way, but we also realize that there's something really sacred going on at this table, is that all are invited, we're encountering each other as a, a group of people who are trying to embody this very, very distinct and alternative reality that the church is. And I also want to remind you at the communion table each week that there's all kinds of things that we want to be invited to do. It might be a place where, where you need to confess to someone or ask for forgiveness. Uh, one of the things I always say that our, our pastors like doing anybody likes doing this is uh, through the years this has been a place where people have grabbed me or others and said I really need to pray about this I need to unburden myself we're really aware that we all come to communities like this with burdens and with wounds and and with the need to be known so remember as we gather at the table each week that this is a sacred encounter where we want you to be known. We want you to enjoy each other's presence. We, we realize that just the conversation of remembering each other's lives is deeply sacred in that. So tonight I invite you to the table, a table of people who are trying to live as reconciled people, a table of people who are trying to include and trying to listen and trying to live into God's redemption, even though we know at times that we don't fulfill that 
perfectly. And the beauty maybe of what Dan was talking about tonight is the process goes both ways. It goes back to us knowing that we don't have to have it perfectly to begin practicing it. But the more that we practice it, the more we truly become a binding and loosing community. So, Wade, would, would you like for us to sing the benediction before we go to the table? Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, so we're going to sing the benediction, which is often a song that we really want to sing and hear each other's voices together on. And then as the, as the song ends or just as it's ending, please feel invited to come to the table and break bread and, uh, and pour wine and juice for each other. Yeah, thanks, Tim. This uh, song is um, Bring on the Wonder. is a song that I think really uh, encapsulates this idea that as we remember that uh, we're made in the image of God, that we're people that God loves, that as we remember that and as we come back together, as we have this time in this process, it can actually be a time of, of wonder and of, of a place where we're surprised by how much God's able to do. And I think that's really in this song, Bring on the Wonder. And the chorus is really easy to get, and we'll do it a number of times. So uh, join with us. I can't see the stars anymore living here. Let's go to the hills where the outlines are clear. Bring on the wonder, bring on the song. I pushed you down deep in my soul for too long. Let's do that again. Bring on the wonder. So bring on the wonder, bring on the song. I pushed you down deep in my soul. For too long I fell through the cracks At the end of our street Let's go to the beach Get the sand in our feet Bring on the wonder Bring on the song I push you down in my soul for too long bring on the wonder we got it all wrong we pushed you down deep in our souls for too long
Y'all enjoy the table, and uh, we'll see you again next week.